Welcome to this Forthright Radio for July 21st, 2021. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today on Forthright Radio is Jan Werner Müller, who is a German political philosopher and historian of political ideas at Princeton University, where he has taught political theory and the history of political ideas since 2005. He regularly writes opinion pieces for The Guardian, The New York Times, Süddeutsche Zeitung, Le Monde, The New York Review of Books, The London Review of Books, and Foreign Affairs, among other publications. His latest book is Democracy Rules, just published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Professor Jan Werner Müller. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You're originally from Germany, which has recently been devastated by deadly historic floods. Are your family members who remain there okay? They're okay. Thank you for asking. But it's indeed been devastating and people have not experienced anything like this in at least, in at least a century or so. Yeah, yeah, well, my heart goes out to everyone involved there. It's it's awful. More and more citizens in the United States and in democracies around the world are questioning whether democracy can continue as a way of organizing societies. On the other hand, you quote Saul Bellow deriding such concerns as crisis chatter. Professor Miller, you asked the question, what are plausible criteria for declaring a life or death moment for democracy? And is there a way for such criteria not to look immediately partisan? It seems to me that with people dying in their hundreds from the heat in the American and Canadian West, and as we just mentioned, more hundreds of people dying from the floods in Europe, we are in a life and death moment quite literally, and partisan politics are not addressing this existential challenge, but are stuck in a politics and economics of the past. So would you share with our listeners the criteria you have identified to assess the viability of democracy? So allow me to specify two of those criteria and then also say just a word about the role of partisanship in addressing existential challenges. So one criterion is whether a political system can still process conflict or whether there's a kind of breakdown where, let's say, one side no longer accepts the outcome of a political process and Oh, just as an example, says, no, no, our candidate didn't really lose the election. It must have been stolen. And hence, we attack the capital. That is a real breakdown moment of sorts. Of course, the whole system didn't break down on January 6th, but it really was a kind of existential threat to democracy as such. But the fact that people might be angry or that they're dissatisfied or even that they aren't always super civilized in the way they exchange arguments, none of these things are a real crisis for democracy as such. So that's criteria number one. Criteria number two is whether a real turnover of power is still possible. And what we've seen in the last couple of years, in particular in many countries in the world, unfortunately, is that pretty clever 
authoritarian actors have transformed their political systems from within in such a way that it can still look to outside observers as if democracy was still there. There are still elections, people can even blog freely and criticize the leader and so on, but a real turnover of power is getting incredibly difficult. And that's also a real crisis, doesn't have to come with violence, doesn't have to be very spectacular, doesn't always make it to the TV evening news, but that is also a form of crisis. So these are the two things I would I would specify. Just one word about partisanship, if I may. So the fact that something is a grave challenge, I think, should not lead us to say, oh, therefore, partisanship has to stop. We can have legitimate conflicts around all kinds of issues because even grave challenges such as global warming do not have a sort of singularly rational solution. They are still choices about values, there's still choices about how much we care about the future or maybe care less about the future. These are all things you can debate. Of course, arises when we basically can't even set up a proper conflict because, let's imagine, one side denies the facts, even the most basic facts completely, and persists with a narrative according to which climate change might not be real, who really knows, scientists haven't really figured this out, and so on. Then, yeah, we have a real problem. But I would warn against the notion that, oh, just because something is a grave challenge, political conflict, partisanship becomes somehow illegitimate as such. It can actually be a resource to have different perspectives sort of feed into a debate, different values being articulated. None of that is sort of dangerous for democracy as such. Your book is entitled Democracy Rules, Liberty, Equality, Uncertainty. And You then go on to identify some of the rules that you've begun to elucidate here. But I want to go back to the rise of authoritarianism and extreme right populism that you note. And you sort of alluded to this also, that these autocrats cloak themselves in what you call fake democracy. Would you expand on that a bit more, please? The far-right populists who we see in power today. So think of Viktor Orban in Hungary, think of Modi in India, think of Bolsonaro or Erdogan in Turkey. None of these figures officially says we are offering an alternative system to democracy. So very different from the 20th century when we had lots of official systemic alternatives to liberal democracy. On the contrary, many of these people say we actually are better Democrats than in many other countries. We give the people more of a a choice, a voice, etc., etc. And this is, in essence, to put it bluntly, a false claim. They basically start out by saying that they and only people are the silent. They usually end up excluding everybody who doesn't agree with them or doesn't follow their political program or doesn't share their particular understanding of what the true Hungarian people, the true Turkish people, etc., are really like. So that's why they have a kind of autocratic tendency. It's on the basis of a sort of fundamental anti-pluralism where they don't accept the fact that all peoples are diverse, are pluralistic. It's never just one homogeneous people which speaks with one one voice. So that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem, maybe less obvious, is that even though they talk the talk 
of more participation, more referendums, all these kinds of things, very often, if they have enough power, which isn't always the case, but if they have enough power, and if the checks on them aren't strong enough, they actually tend to entrench their own power in such a way that future majorities, if they can come to power at all, have very little room for maneuver. In other words, they will try to pass new constitutions, which basically entrench their particular understandings of the polity, or they tend to staff the state apparatus with their partisan followers as opposed to more or less neutral bureaucrats. In other words, what actually happens is exactly the opposite of what they promise, which is, oh, you know, the people can finally speak and freely decide. Because it's, well, authoritarianism, it's ultimately quite the opposite. And because it's all cloaked in the language of participation and democracy, it's not that easy to see in all cases. I'm struck by the many parallels that I perceive in what you're describing and what we're experiencing now in the United States after the 2020 election. A certain percentage of Americans, different Research indicates different percentages, but hovering around 30%, I think, is a reasonable figure. I simply don't believe that a fair election happened. They believe that it was stolen. That's at the national level. Then, paralleling what you've described in these other countries, in state legislatures around the country in which the Republicans have both the legislature and the executive at a very rapid pace, legislation is being passed and then signed into law that is very antithetical to what I understand as democratic principles. What is your feeling on these sorts of things, sir? Well, allow me to be rather blunt in this respect as well. This, of course, is all about one particular political party. And before we immediately blame particular percentages of our fellow citizens and say, oh, they're so irrational, or why do they buy into all these conspiracy theories? I think we got to start with the Republican Party, which unfortunately has been on this trajectory for some time, didn't all start with with Trump. I think it's much more plausible to say that in certain ways, an attitude according to which you basically always try to delegitimate your political opponents, an attitude according to which you also constantly tell people that the real America, to again put it bluntly, a supposedly white Christian America is under threat, is being taken away from us, and so on. All this has been going on for, for quite some time and has become very entrenched as a kind of political strategy. Maybe less obviously, what has also become very, very clear, more so under Trump, though, is that the party has become so, let's say, internally authoritarian or homogeneous that something like critical loyalty or legitimate opposition within the party has become incredibly difficult. And that might sound like a very obscure pedantic point, but it can really matter whether people feel, look, I can be a good faith Republican, a Republican in good standing, and I can still criticize Trump. That would be the normal thing in a sort of normal democratic party, that you have a certain degree of internal pluralism, that it's not like, okay, if you criticize the leader, you are declared a traitor. If you criticize the leader, you can no longer really be part of this political association at all. So 
one of the things that I think hasn't been discussed quite enough is that the kind of internal autocracy that we find in some of these parties, and not just in the United States with the Republicans, eventually sort of has an effect on the outside. Because if you're autocratic internally, and you basically, as in the case of Trump, make a political party into a sort of personality cult, where it's all about loyalty to the leader, and it's no longer really about arguing about principles or the best policies or whatever, then you're also much more likely to have autocratic effects on the political system as a whole. And what's deeply problematic, tragic, you might even say, is that it's one thing to have a situation like this in a multi-party system, where it's already bad enough if you have one party that is sort of trending in this autocratic direction. If you have a two-party system, as we have here, and one of the parties is basically distancing itself in all kinds of ways from democracy and taking active measures to undermine democracy, you mentioned uh, voter suppression and election subversion, you have a massive problem. And at least historically, we don't have a lot of good sort of uh, examples or precedents of how such a situation can really be resolved. Professor Muller, in, in your book, Democracy Rules, Liberty, Equality, Uncertainty, you delve a bit into the history of these things. And you point out that the two-party system actually began in 1842 as a winner-takes-all system, and that there was no constitutional standing for this, and that Congress could change it to proportional representation at any time. Why haven't we done that? It makes so much more sense for people with minority opinions to have more of a parliamentarian model than a majoritarian model. To be fair, many of our colleagues in political science for a long time would have said a two-party system also does have distinct advantages. So you have much clearer accountability. You don't have these enormous coalitions. So just think of Israel as, as an example of this, where you have an enormous number of parties involved, lots of horse trading, really unclear who exactly wanted what or did what and who ought to be punished if the government doesn't do well. So I think we, we, should, we should not idealize multi-party systems as, as such. But of course... Under certain circumstances, you could also see distinct advantages for them. The reason we will probably not transition to one is simply that you would need those who have most of a stake in the current arrangement and who, and who benefit from it most. They would have to play a major role in changing it. And they have really no reason to basically invite further competitors, which also explains, of course, why third parties have occasionally appeared in this formulation by Richard Hofstetter, they're like bees. They sting and then they die. So they, they do have an effect. It's not trivial that a Ross Perot appeared on the scene or that you had other contenders in, in the 20th century who really shook things up. But ultimately, we're not going to move to anything that looks that recognizably different. One thing one could think about, but again, this is very much blue sky, blue sky thinking, and just as an idea that some people might find worth entertaining. So at least some countries, when they've confronted this issue, that you basically cannot expect political parties to decide on matters where they have to regulate the conditions of their own competition. 
So size of election districts is one is one example where, you know, we're slowly at last trying to move to putting this into the hands of independent commissions as opposed to having partisan actors basically doing things for their own sake. Or think of the, the salary of deputies in, in a parliament or the salary of deputies in a parliament or even the size of a parliament. Sometimes people, I think, have put forward the entirely plausible notion that these are things which could be decided not just by an independent commission, but maybe even by citizens, so-called ordinary citizens themselves. So sometimes uh, there have been attempts to say, let's select random citizens, people who have no connection to politics necessarily, and explain to them what the issues are. And then they can basically come up with what they see as a reasonable solution. And then maybe this can be put to a referendum. So take it out of the hands of professional politicians and political parties, because, you know, they are not exactly neutral when it comes to these sorts of questions, and hand it back to citizens themselves. I think that's a, that's a very attractive proposition. But again, there's a bit of a chicken and egg problem, because you would basically already have to convince political parties to be ready to release these issues and hand them over to people who might decide in ways which at least some partisan professional actors will not really find very, very attractive. All right, well, well, let's stick with that for a little bit. Sometimes you refer to this as lotocracy, like a lottery form of government. You point out that this actually was the way it was done in ancient Athens, considered one of the very first efforts at republicanism and democracy. But let's be specific and talk about the Oregon model since 2010, so I find this, in many ways, very attractive proposition that you combine the advantages of so-called lotocracy, which is basically a fancy word for this idea of randomly selecting citizens, but with some tweaks such that you don't all of a sudden accidentally end up with an assembly of 99% of white men or something like that. So there are ways of tweaking it to make sure that it is somewhat representative, but basically you choose by lot, you choose randomly so-called ordinary citizens. I mean, we're all ordinary citizens. I've never met anybody who wasn't ordinary on one level. So that's sort of one part of it. And these people then get to deliberate about certain policy issues. And they can listen to experts, but the experts, of course, shouldn't decide. They just advise. And then eventually, these citizens come up with a kind of recommendation. And they lay out their reasoning about why they think a certain policy measure is, on balance, the right thing to do, is an attractive proposition. But then it still goes to a referendum. So unlike with some proposals, more ambitious proposals, you might say, of political theorists who want to switch entirely to this thing called lotocracy and who want to be done with elections as we know them and who basically want to just give decision-making power to these randomly selected assemblies, in this model, it still goes back to, if you like, the people themselves and they can vote something up or down. As we know from let's say California, probably most infamously, these sort of general referendum processes can very easily be captured. They can sound like, oh, this is great because everybody gets to participate. But actually, unlike regular elections, it can sometimes be easier for, to put it bluntly, special interests, people who are especially invested in a particular policy issue to basically pump huge amounts of money into the process and, and have outcomes, which actually, if we had stuck with elections and representative democracy as we know it more generally, may have actually gone a different way. So, 
The usual caveat applies. This is not a panacea. There are lots of other factors in play. But I think what is attractive overall about this idea of combining, basically getting randomly selected citizens together with a mass referendum is that on the one hand, people can feel that, look, these were people like me who were talking about these issues. I can understand what their arguments were. Everybody gets delivered, you know, a letter that says, look, here are the five reasons why this is a good thing. Here are maybe two counter reasons. So it's very comprehensible for people what's going on. At the same time, they don't feel excluded in the way that they might feel excluded if we switched over entirely to randomly selected assemblies. Because then if they decide, that's really it. Then I can't really go back and say, oh, but look, I had a totally different view. And now I feel completely disempowered. So personally, I would not advocate replacing electoral democracy political parties, etc., all the kind of usual elements of the package of representative democracy that we have with this model. Some of my colleagues think we should. I don't. But selectively, it can be extremely helpful. And on balance, I would say we should do more along these lines. We're speaking with Professor Jan Werner Müller. His book is Democracy Rules, Liberty, Equality, uncertainty. Now, the first two words in the title after democracy rules, liberty and equality, everybody's used to that. But you posit as one of the elements really required uncertainty. What do you mean by that? Why do you say that? Well, I think it's a particularly hard sell during and perhaps by now a little bit after the pandemic, because one thing that all of us, I think, really had enough of was precisely uncertainty. Uncertainty about what the virus was doing, where the numbers were going up, for which reason, etc. So uncertainty is a difficult thing to talk about in our particular moment, especially. What I meant was not that uncertainty is somehow at the same basic, let's say, moral level as equality and liberty. I mean, these are really the bedrock principles of democracy. And they are clearly normative. They tell us something about how we should live, how we should treat our fellow citizens, and so on. Uncertainty is not at that level. But it's still an important, in fact, crucial and indispensable component for democracy. Why? goes back to a point we briefly touched on earlier on. Basically, it refers to the fact that in a functioning democracy, there has to be uncertainty about the outcomes. If you always want to know in advance who's going to be in power and how elections turn out, then you probably will like North Korea or you will like the outcome of what some of our friends and colleagues in the Republican Party are doing in certain states. In other words, manipulating the system such that outcomes are no longer really in question and that this other indispensable moment that we touched on earlier as well, the possibility of a turnover in power is basically no longer a possibility. This riffs a little bit on what might sound like a very banal definition of democracy by the distinguished Polish-born scholar Adam Siworski. But at one point, he simply said, look, democracy is a system where parties lose elections. And it's not always the same parties. And this might sound incredibly basic or even banal, but it does contain an important insight. And if we face political systems where this no longer happens and where basically free and fair elections are no longer possible, such that the ruling party always wins, that's a clear indication that we don't really have democracy anymore, and hence we also no longer really have liberty and equality as a kind of lived reality of a democratic system. 
The first part of your title is Democracy Rules. So let's get to what you have identified as some of the rules necessary for democracy. You use an expression called hard borders. Would you take it from there, please? So, as also briefly said earlier, democracy on one level is about conflict. It is about divisions. I mean, the kind of, with all due respect, slightly kitschy, communitarian talk that we hear ever more often along the lines of, oh, if we only could come together and all agree and no longer have all these, you know, wasteful conflicts and no longer have partisanship and so on. It kind of betrays, with all due respect, a certain misunderstanding of what democracy is supposed to do. Obviously, we do need to agree on some basic ground rules, including the fact that if you lose the election and you get fewer votes, you kind of accept the outcome. That's clear. But at the same time, democracy is designed to precisely enable us to deal with conflicts and divisions in a peaceful and civilized manner. If we didn't have conflicts, if everything was always already consensus and, and kumbaya, it's not obvious why we really would need precisely this kind of machinery that is precisely designed to enable conflict in a certain way, to resolve conflict through elections, such that it's clear who has the majority, but such that it's also clear that the minority can come back next time and try to convince more citizens and become the majority again. I mean, all that is sort of civics 101 in many ways, I realize, but the essential point tends to get lost because sometimes commentators think that, oh, polarization is so bad, divisions are so bad, that the only alternative is, oh, we all have to sort of come together on all issues. My point is, we don't. Conflict is fine, but, and this gets to your question at last, but within certain borders, not just any type of conflict. And the two that I was trying to specify are the following. First, what you can do is what, in my view, right-wing or far-right authoritarian populists precisely always tend to do, which is to suggest that some citizens do not truly belong to the people. I mean, this is the kind of talk that we remember from Trump when he would basically look at certain congresswomen and sort of suggest that they should go back to their country. Well, what's the message? The message is they are not truly part of the American people. Or a similar maneuver, if you basically don't answer critics with arguments, but you simply immediately switch to a notion that, well, anybody who criticizes me is by definition un-American. That is not part of legitimate democratic conflict. Because in a sense, what you, what you put forward is that the others can't really be partners to a conflict. They can't really be legitimate opponents. They shouldn't be here at all. And plenty of far-right authoritarian populists are basically doing this in the world today. So that's one hard border that I think we have to accept. And that still leaves room for a lot of tough, tough kinds of arguments and doesn't always have to be civil in the, in the sense of nice and so on. No, political competition can be sort of very tough and, and maybe even, even, uh, insulting to some degree. I mean, might not be nice, but that doesn't really violate this kind of particular hard border. The other one is simply that if we cannot at all agree on anything like shared facts, it's also very difficult 
to accept others as legitimate partners to a conflict. This goes back to what we talked about briefly in terms of global warming, that if the person you're talking to from the get-go says, no, I'm, I mean, this is, this is just, I, I don't accept this as a challenge. I don't accept that anything is happening that we should even be talking about because, you know, this, this, is, this could be all because nature does this and nature does that and there isn't even a policy question here. Then... It's also very hard to see how you could conduct conflict in a way that ultimately is seen as, as productive for a political system as a whole. I recognize, and I hasten to add, that of course identifying facts isn't always easy. It's not true that the facts somehow speak for themselves. Uh, none of us has ever heard the facts speak. And plus, even if we can agree on basic facts, it doesn't mean that we're going to agree on a hell of a lot of other things. There is still a lot of room for disagreement on the basis of different value commitments, different historical experiences, different assumptions about the future. So it's important that we kind of leave the space for conflict open. There's nothing wrong with that. But again, if we simply from the get-go say, well, in a sense, these other politicians or even citizens don't really have a place in our polity to begin with, then this whole thing doesn't work. Or if we from the get-go say, no, what you're talking about as, as an issue or as a policy challenge doesn't really exist at all, then also this kind of model is, is bound to fail. I was intrigued by what you wrote about COVID, which is another one of these facts that we can't agree on. You described it as both a Rorschach test and an x-ray. Tell us about that thinking. I think it's a Rorschach test in the sense that plenty of political actors and maybe plenty of citizens as well very quickly said, okay, this is a crisis. This is a historic moment. This is a break with the past. And we already know what it means. Because the tendency is then to say, well, it means what I always believed anyway, or here's yet another occasion to advance my political preferences of one form or another. Maybe the, a better example for this sort of logic is actually the financial crisis of 2008, where, if you recall, plenty of, let's say, social democrats at the time immediately said, oh, you know, it's sort of obvious what this means. Finally, neoliberalism has failed. This just shows where greedy bankers and Wall Street will get us. And now we're going to see a golden age for social democracy, for the left, for the welfare state, for regulation, you, you name it. And as we all know, it didn't quite turn out this way. Arguably, the political formation that most successfully interpreted the financial crisis symbolically, but then also with very real effects on the ground, so to speak, was something that nobody had really sort of imagined immediately at the time, namely the Tea Party. The Tea Party, in a sense, was very successful in suggesting a framing of how to understand what happened in 2008. And as we all know, had a large influence on how the Republican Party then developed in subsequent years. So what I'm in a sense saying indirectly is that the Russia thing is, is, is actually kind of dangerous because you, if you just simply say, oh, I already know what this means, it means what I always thought anyway, and now things are automatically going to go in a certain direction, that I think underestimates that no crisis 
automatically delivers its own lessons. Nothing is ever quite so obvious. If you're a political actor, if you're a political party, if you're a political leader, you need to do the work of interpreting things for your potential constituency. You need to explain why your program is the right kind of answer. And nothing is automatic in politics, and you shouldn't assume that it is, even if on the basis of this Rorschach mechanism, you think that it should be obvious what's really happening. The X-ray part simply refers to the fact, and by now I think plenty of other people have said this as well, that the pandemic made us see certain structural problems and weaknesses, and in particular, of course, inequalities, that were not completely unsuspected. So it is a little bit like having a broken bone. I mean, you feel the pain, you know that something is going on, but you don't entirely have certainty about, you know, whether it's quite what you think it is. Once you see the x-ray, you can be pretty sure that, yeah, there really is, let's say, a fracture. And I think something like this also happened with the COVID pandemic, that it's not like everybody thought everything was great beforehand and all of a sudden the pandemic hits. Many things in terms of how different communities were affected very differently by the virus, we kind of suspected. But now it's become much clearer how particular inequalities especially would translate into radically unequal outcomes on the basis of very different housing conditions on the basis of very different levels of access to medical care, and so on and so forth. You talk about what happens in democracies when extreme populists, whether it's to the left or the right, lose. Speak very briefly to that, but I want to get to the concept of loyal opposition. So the reaction to when a group is certain they're going to win and then they lose. Expand on that, please. So nobody likes to lose. And it's not a requirement of democracy that losers concede that, yeah, just because the, you know, the winners won, therefore they were right about all their policy prescriptions or their political principles somehow have been vindicated and we, the losers, simply have to throw in the towel. That's not a requirement. But there's a particular constellation or a particular problem with populists, as I understand that term, that I'll briefly try to, to, to put forward because it says something about what we've been experiencing in the past year or so. Populists claim that they and only they represent what they call the real people or also the silent majority. If you take that claim seriously, it implies that if the majority can express itself, populists must be in power, because after all, by definition, they represent the majority. So if they're not elected, further implication, it must mean that we're not so much talking about the silent majority, but maybe about a silenced majority. In other words, plenty, not all, but plenty of populists, after they lose an election, immediately start saying, well, if the majority, if the real people had really been able to express themselves, we would have won. The fact that we didn't win only goes to prove that somebody must have manipulated things behind the scenes. Liberal elites, take your pick of who could have done that. So they very often jump to the conclusion that they must have been fraud. In that sense, what Trump did 
I wouldn't say it was entirely predictable, but it was also not such a surprise. If you look at what some similar actors have tried to do in the past and what other actors think of Bolsonaro in Brazil, for instance, might try to pull off in the future. There's a kind of pattern to this particular political strategy. I hasten to add that, of course, this doesn't imply that we couldn't criticize our election system or that anybody who says, look, I think this was kind of unfair in certain ways or I have a problem with campaign finance or anything like that that this is somehow dangerously populist. Not at all. Any of us can criticize our political system, our election system, and so on and so forth. And I think it's fair to say there is plenty to criticize. But to basically end up saying, because I didn't win, our system is rotten. That doesn't really work as a democratic argument. And hence, to come back to the other part of your question, it is important that losers become a legitimate opposition legitimate in a number of senses. So, of course, they should criticize the government. That's their job in, in, in many ways. Hold it accountable and so on. Again, that's sort of civics civics 101. But at the same time, it has to be a legitimate and loyal opposition. So they have to remain loyal to the overall political system. They can't end up saying, because we don't like this government, we're going to bring the whole system down in one form or another. And less obviously, ideally, even within an opposition, it's important that you end up having different voices and that basically an opposition ideally uses the time when it is an opposition to develop new policy ideas, uh, have a bit of distance from the day-to-day pressures of governing in order to sort of rethink what it stands for, how it eventually might construct a majority again, and so on and so forth. So these are all things which you are unlikely to end up doing if, unfortunately, your party has become a kind of personality cult. Well, speaking of personalities, there is certainly one in the Congress, Mitch McConnell, He represents both he and in combination with the filibuster, a a very serious juggernaut to any efforts on the part of the now barely ruling party of the Democratic Party with the thinnest of majorities in both the House and the Senate of getting anything done that they promised to their constituents. And of course, just a brief reminder that in the eight years of the Obama administration, Mitch McConnell was all too successful in preventing many of the programs that that administration had promised their constituents from getting through. And he considers it a a point of pride that he has done that. So it seems to me that this is a serious weakness in democracy that one person could manage this over, we're going on uh, 12 years now, right? So in a functioning democracy, an opposition certainly must have its say, but a majority must also get its way. And it's worth remembering that the founding fathers certainly were worried about the tyranny of the majority. I mean, that's what everybody remembers, you know, that's very frequently referenced. But they were also concerned about a tyranny of the minority. And as you as you were saying, our system structurally 
tends to favor that in all kinds of ways, given how the Senate is organized, given also how particular states with sometimes very sparse populations can play an outsized role. I mean, there are many good reasons for wanting, you know, checks and balances and making it not so easy for a majority to get its way. We can certainly have a discussion about that. But if you end up with a de facto empowerment of a minority and one that, as you say, can go on for a very long time. And if furthermore, this sort of, as some of our colleagues have, I think, rightly put it, this sort of counter-majoritarian party no longer has any clear incentives to reach out to more people or to really sort of gain actual majorities, then you have a serious problem and it gets even worse as if it, you know, it wasn't already bad enough. If what I'm here riffing on a, on a nice formulation of the New York media critic Jay Rosen, if the counter-majoritarian party, i.e. the Republicans, then eventually also becomes the counter-factual party. In other words, if they are not only giving up on really trying to construct majorities, but if they, in addition, start to basically make acceptance of the big lie into a kind of litmus test for party loyalty, and then also basically end up constantly fighting with journalists and news organizations, I mean, real news organizations, in one form or another, because they, in a sense, have said goodbye to a normal democratic competition, which, as said earlier, when we talked about the two hard borders, needs sort of some common factual basis. So all of which is, is a long-winded way of saying that we have some serious, and I, I agree with you, we have some serious structural challenges. This isn't just about, oh, Trump the person and the great demagogue and so on and so forth, nor is it just about people who might occasionally want to buy into conspiracy theories. This also has a kind of structural slash institutional side that will not disappear overnight. That brings us to the very important part of your book, Democracy Rules, Liberty, Equality, Uncertainty, Professor Miller, of democracy's critical infrastructure. Would you share with our listeners some of the elements of that infrastructure? Infrastructure is, of course, a popular term these days. And what I was trying to get across with this particular notion is that democracy also needs an infrastructure. If we think about what that term really means, on one level, it is about reaching others and being reached by them. So think about roads, trains, even the post office in terms of how can I connect to other people? How can I get from A to B and so on? And what this means in a democratic context is that there must be institutions which allow the exercise of our basic democratic freedoms, so think about free speech, but also freedom of association, freedom of assembly, and so on, to become multiplied and become effective in such a way that, ideally, we can have an effect on democratic outcomes as a whole. In other words, if I'm entirely left to my own devices or resources, yes, I can demonstrate by myself, I can spam you with my unpublished op-eds and so on, but if I find a political party as an organization, or if I can find a news organization, a news media, who can multiply my messages, or where I can also receive messages from others and then decide whether I go along or not, that remains absolutely crucial to representative democracy as we've known it pretty much since the 19th century. In other words, the quality and the state of political parties in particular and news organizations in particular matters for the health of democracy as a whole. 
And I'm sure that many of your listeners would sort of see this as a pretty, pretty obvious point. But I think it's been underplayed in the whole discussion about crisis of democracy. Too quickly, I think people have jumped to the conclusion of saying, oh, the problem are the people, the people are irrational, they elect demagogues, or other extreme, the problem is with the elites, they're all oligarchs, they've distanced themselves from the people. There's plenty to be said with regard to these sorts of points of view, but I think the mistake can be that we always end up talking about groups of people, be it the many or the few, and we don't talk about the health of these institutions. And hopefully what has become clear already in our conversation is that the decay and the disrepair that we see in the case of some political parties and also the disrepair that we see in the case of at least some aspects of our media landscape does have real effects on the quality of democracy as a whole. This brings up the so many of the issues around journalism, the whole devolution, in my opinion, from a real fairness doctrine that got knocked out under the Reagan administration, the whole falsehood of objectivity, and what you describe as symmetrical coverage in situations of asymmetrical polarization actually equals distortion. On the other hand, what were journalists supposed to do if during the former presidency, the president was issuing all of these, uh, usually in the form of Twitter, announcements, pronouncements, executive decisions, they had to cover it. But in covering it, they were empowering falsehoods. Uh, do you see where I'm going with this? <laughs> Yes, I know. I see where you're going. And I understand it's not a very good or comfortable place to, to end up in. So my take on this is that this is a, an incredibly difficult challenge. And if anything, it's an art and not a science how to deal with this. But just as a basic point of orientation, I would say two things. One is that, and I think this, is, this was very difficult to learn during the Trump years. One is that indeed, as a number of colleagues have pointed out, a sort of symmetrical depiction of a fundamentally asymmetrical reality ends up as a distortion. So, you know, as late as September 2020, we had things from the two parties now live in their different realities. Well, but still, one reality was kind of more real than the other one. And not saying that becomes a problem. At the same time, it's, of course, also a danger if somehow the press does in the end look like it is the opposition. Because you remember, that's what the Bannons and Trumps of this world, in a sense, always wanted. You know, they wanted the press to look like the opposition, because then it becomes easier to discredit the press and say, look, pay no attention, because these are all partisan, partisan actors. The only quote-unquote solution, I realize this is not a panacea, but the only, I think, productive way of dealing with this is to basically find a line between normal policy disagreement, where both sidesing the issue, so to speak, is the right thing to do, where you say, look, here's what the two sides are saying about a particular policy challenge, and you decide yourself roughly where you stand on this. But that's different from a situation where political actors are attacking the basics of democracy itself, because the basics of democracy themselves are, of course, also indispensable for the practice of journalism. Let me give you an example, which maybe not everybody who's listening will, will agree with, but just to get the point across. On, let's say, healthcare policy, you can think that the abolition of the Affordable Care Act would be a complete disaster. 
I happen to think that, but I would not say that the abolition of the Affordable Care Act equals the end of democracy. That's just a Republican policy decision, which an empowered party or president could could take. To basically uh, start to manipulate the election system or to get rid of any inspector general who might be on to some corruption in your administration, that's about the basics of democracy. And that's not just a kind of partisan issue where people might have totally different views. That really goes to the basics. So I think what makes it difficult on one level, and forgive me for putting it this way, is that on a certain level, journalists have to become democratic theorists. They have to be able to say, look, this is where this line is. And even more difficult, they have to be able to communicate to their audiences why they portray things sometimes in this way and sometimes in another way. Again, it can be very difficult. I, I understand that. But I think that's really the only way of, I think, kind of negotiating a kind of difficulty which in functioning democracies, very few journalists tended to have because everybody was within a spectrum of basically partisan conflict where the basics of democracy weren't really being questioned. You use a term with which I have not been familiar, militant democracy. It resonated immediately. The long history of struggle for civil rights, women's suffrage, all of these things. On the other hand, the January 6th insurrection and capture of the Capitol briefly were also examples of militant democracy. And I was very much struck by a quote from Goebbels, who said something along the I'm paraphrasing, democracy provided the means of its mortal enemies to annihilate it. What do you mean by a militant democracy and how is this going to help? So this is a term that was coined by a Jewish exile uh, jurist slash political scientist, Karl Löwenstein, in the 1930s. And he first published his thoughts about this in, in a number of American journals. And he basically pointed to the experience of how the Nazis came to power to argue that you can have situations where... A party is not, let's say, violent. Of, co of course, the Nazis were also violent, but let's say a party is not violent. It doesn't sort of breach the criminal law, and yet it is using the tools of democracy to come to power and then abolish democracy itself. Historically, there aren't actually all that many examples where this really happened. I mean, even with the Nazis, it's, it's very question. I mean, this is one thing that people always bring up, but it's not really true that Hitler got a genuine majority, a genuine legitimation of basically erecting a totalitarian dictatorship. So I think we sort of shouldn't overplay how often this happens. But the intuition that you can have actors like this within a democracy is an important one. And sometimes American scholars say, well, that's a very sort of post-totalitarian European thing. This kind of legitimated sometimes the banning of communist parties because they were trying to destroy democracy from within or today far-right neo-Nazi parties. But we don't sort of do this thing in, in the U.S. because you either become immediately subject to the criminal law or everything else basically covered by, by free speech. And that's largely true, but it's not entirely true, because you might say that in the American system as well, you have a number of measures that could be called militant in this way. So an obvious one is impeachment, where basically, if you get the right majority, and as we've learned, it can be very difficult to get the right majority, there's a sort of emergency measure to say, look, here's somebody who is so destructive within the democracy that we need to get rid of, well, usually him, not her, right away. Or, less obvious example, 
The Constitution, of course, guarantees the individual states a republican form of government. And it's a largely forgotten episode in American history that FDR actually sort of encouraged Congress to look at the question whether Louisiana which, according to critics, had been made by by Huey Long into a sort of very authoritarian system, whether that was still truly faithful to Republican principles, and if not, whether there should be some kind of of intervention. So, long story short, this is pointing to the very difficult, and in a sense very dangerous, because in a sense it's, it's, it's possible that measures to defend democracy themselves might have undermining democracy. I mean, just think back to McCarthyism and, and other examples in American history. But nevertheless, it's something that I think the last couple of years have also forced us to address more squarely. What tools or measures might democracy sometimes have to deploy against actors or also against associations who are not doing anything that's immediately criminal and yet they pose a danger to the survival of democracy long term. And so one thing that one could easily have imagined in this category that, of course, plenty of people were advocating was to say, for instance, okay, President Trump can no longer have a public office. We now know enough, the pattern has been so clear of what this man wants to do, how he operates. It's not like, oh, there was a one-off mistake because he was a rookie, he had never been president or for the matter a politician before, it's too bad. It was so clear by the end what the pattern was and that the pattern was going to be repeated over and over again that perhaps a majority would have said, okay, this particular actor needs to be taken out of democratic competition permanently. But as we all know, that didn't happen. Jan Werner Muller, thank you very much for joining us today on Forthright Radio. I'm sure we have not heard the last from Mr. Trump, and we'll see how that plays out in the future. But your book, Democracy Rules, Liberty, Equality, Uncertainty, is very helpful to try to understand how these things do play out. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You have just heard an interview with Princeton University professor Jan Werner Müller. His latest book is Democracy Rules, Liberty, Equality, Uncertainty, just published by Farage, Strauss, and Giroux. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joyla Clare. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. As Professor Jan Werner Müller pointed out, the infrastructure of democracy is a crucial component to its vitality and endurance. Charlie King elucidates this in his satirical song referring to the millennial election of the year 2000, in which the design of the ballot for Miami-Dade County was constructed so that the holes to punch did not line up with the names of the candidates for which one wished to vote. Competence in the construction of the infrastructure of democracy is surely an important component. How different this country would be today had those little Jewish ladies not voted for Buchanan, although most of the rancor was directed at Ralph Nader and his raiders as spoilers. Well, we leave you with Charlie King's take on the story. Thanks for listening and supporting our community radio station, KZYX. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire, signing out for now. 
you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolitz and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.